So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Yeah, and usually when a client comes to us, they'll have some analysis on their sales cycle and and their their sales funnel so that we can look at it and say, okay, LinkedIn leads generally perform better than about every other lead source. So if uh, half of your your leads graduate to a marketing qualified lead, we can assume that probably 70% or higher of LinkedIn leads will do that. And then if uh, let's say one in four leads turns from a marketing qualified lead to a sales qualified lead, then maybe LinkedIn will be more likely. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we're continuing our LinkedIn mini series with a friend and LinkedIn expert, AJ Wilcox. AJ, thanks for coming back. Oh, have me back anytime. This is fun. <laughs> so in case somebody didn't catch previous episodes, can you just give us a couple of stats on, you know, how many millions of dollars of LinkedIn ads you guys have bought at uh, a B2 Linked and, you know, like the partner, like the, I forget the nomenclature, but like a LinkedIn approved agency or something. Tell yeah, me about yeah. It. We've managed over $135 million in LinkedIn ads. We're the only media buying agency who's an approved or, or certified partner with LinkedIn. I forget the nomenclature too. I, I run the podcast called Link, the LinkedIn Ads Show. And I'm also the author of the LinkedIn Learning Course, all about LinkedIn ads. So uh, those, those are our creds. I don't think I knew that last one. Ooh, yeah, we, I, I actually just finished filming the the update to it. So probably in the next two or three months, we, we'll see a brand spanking new update. Okay. How long is the course? The old one was like an hour and five minutes. I think the new one will probably be about an hour and a half, but it's it's real good. I'm, I'm proud of the content. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've asked you before, Tell me more about the like being the approved vendor thing. Like what what is that actually? What do you what can you do? What does that uh look like? Yeah, good question because we actually get this question all the time. The reason we have this designation is early on I, I had a couple of of internal folks at LinkedIn who really trusted our opinion. And so they would reach out to us every time they had a, a really big problem client and you know brought us in for consulting and stuff. And and one of these, these gentlemen happened to be the head of the partner program. And so one time I was helping him out and he was like, hey, would you want to be an official partner? And I was like, sure, what's it mean? I don't know, just yeah, give it to me. <laughs> and so it's it's something that is usually reserved for technology partners, but because we, we also create technology, we're, we're kind of the only one of our kind, uh, which is kind of fun, but it basically means like we get special access to LinkedIn. We get our, our, our own rep and uh, access to their API to build cool tools. And we get to view the roadmap like six months in advance. So we know what's coming, but other than that, not too.
too too much. You never told me that. So like what 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 kind of stuff do you do plugging into their API? Like what's something you've made in the past? Oh man. One of the big problems that we had is we manage accounts that have thousands of campaigns and thousands of, of ads running at any given time. And what happens with any kind of social media marketing, but certainly LinkedIn is, you know, it matters a lot here too is after people have seen the same ads for a while, they start to get tired of seeing them and you'll see your effectiveness go down. So what happens is after about a month, you know, we'd we'd work for weeks to, to launch all these thousand ads so that we're all ready to go. And then by the time we finish launching all those ads, it's already time to refresh again. Like, and it was just a constant cycle of, of human work, it was, which was terrible. So we built on LinkedIn's API, a bulk ad publishing tool. So we can just put in an Excel spreadsheet and do an upload. And you know, now we can create thousands of ads you know, in the time that it would take to create like, I don't know, 20. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. How long does it take to make something like that? It, it took us, I mean, we, we had one developer, an expensive developer out of San Francisco who couldn't give us much of his time. So development went slow. And then we switched over to an Indian team where we had two full-timers, but there was obviously a big learning curve there. So it, we're about, about two years into creating tools. And now we have a bulk ad publisher tool, uh, a bulk campaign creator, uh, a bulk campaign and ad editor. We have an ad scheduling tool that, that will like turn it on and turn it off uh, during like business hours and stuff. So we've got a few more things to do, but I think we're almost wrapped up. That's cool. So is this only for clients? Are you considering offering it to other folks or how does that work? Hey, yeah. So if, if anyone searches it out, it's linkedinadsbulk.com. It, it's live and it's active and, and we, we let everyone use it. There's even a freemium version where if you're not doing more than like 10 ads or not scheduling more than three campaigns, it's just free forever. And, and I, the only reason I don't publicize it is I'm not proud of the user experience yet. Like when you look at it, you can see it's not polished and my OCD has me like, you know, a little worried about, about that. So once I'm proud of it, I think we'll, we'll actually release it as a full-fledged tool, but who knows, maybe we just at some point, like just keep it as an internal, like this is our secret sauce. This is why we can manage, you know, such spend so efficiently. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm learning something new every time we do this for, for this episode, can we dive in to kind of what we were talking about a little bit before of, of helping recognize like what actually gets attention and cuts through the noise on LinkedIn these days? Yeah. And this is really important because the same principles are going to apply on whatever network you're on. So we're talking about LinkedIn today, but you could just as easily uh, translate this to Facebook, to TikTok, to you know any sort of ad. So when it comes to LinkedIn, the biggest difference is that when you're on LinkedIn, you are in the work mindset and you're usually not there for entertainment. You're usually on your way to do something. It's, it's a task oriented type of approach. And so the reason why that would be different than Facebook on LinkedIn, we've got to tell people within the first couple words, like we have to get their attention and show them that there is some pain point that they feel that they don't have to, or some value that, that they need from you. And whereas on Facebook, we would write, you know, you could write a big, long story, you know, a thousand character, like weave them into a narrative on LinkedIn. You don't, you just like hit them immediately with, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Talk to us. But, but the same thing between LinkedIn and Facebook is that the color palettes are very all blue, gray, and white. And one of the most important things you can do is just stand out. And that's not especially hard to do on LinkedIn because 
like, you know, not only is it blue, gray, and white, so we can look at a color wheel and say, ah, orange and red and green are going to contrast nicely. But we also know that LinkedIn's feed is going to be filled with like pictures of people in suits and ties and buttoned up and boring corporate stock photos. And so all, you know, not all you have to do, but one of the biggest and easiest things to do is, okay, we're going to put creative together that connects to people, you know, individually. It doesn't feel like work to them. And we all, you know, if we're on LinkedIn, you know, we're thinking about work, but we're all people who have varied interests. And so when, when you make a personal connection, people will take a break for that and they will take a break for your content. So thinking about navigating that, what type of advice do you have for people? Because they've got this thing where they, for, for at least for professionals, you know, there's often this idea of they would like to stand out, but not in a way that's going to hurt credibility or not in a way that's going to downgrade the perception of our brand. So when it comes to navigating, you know, again, like you said, picking colors, reds, yellows, you know, colors that you're not seeing on their oranges, right? But, you know, maybe something that relates to something other than wearing a suit, right? Any, any guidance on choosing that imagery of staying on brand, not hurting reputation, but standing out? Yeah. When we bring up the colors thing, a whole bunch of our clients say, oh man, our, our brand colors are blue and gray. Like this is, you know, how do we stand out? And we usually have to look into their their branding to, to look for an accent color. So a lot of times they'll have a, a red or a yellow or a, you know, a, a pink accent or something. Not too many, often pink, but you get the idea. And then we'll try to like make elements in the ad pop with that color. And so it's still on brand. That's, that's one way. My other comment is when people are trying to, you know, people and brands are trying to play it safe. Uh, usually what it means is they're acting stodgy. They're acting, you know, essentially boring. And when you do that, you fit in with all the other content on LinkedIn, which means you all get ignored. So, you know, I, I try to coach people like, don't think about like, oh, I don't want to say anything that, that keeps shame on us. <laughs> Instead think like everyone Everyone on here makes mistakes and we side with people. We, we cheer on the underdog and we appreciate people that we connect to personally. It's really hard to personally connect to someone who is perfect. But when you see someone who has foibles, just like you, it, it's endearing. It's not like a brand endangerment exercise. Very cool. And this is something else I don't know. Do you guys get involved in the creative? Do you coach clients on their own creative? What does that look like? Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, we we charge a little bit of extra for creative development. And so if they have their own department, great. They get a nice little discount and we get to just use theirs. But if they don't have a design department, then they can rely on ours. Okay. So I think the colors is good. I don't know that I necessarily would have picked that out. It makes perfect sense as soon as you say it. But the next one that I want to talk about is, you know, you've got to mention in, in one of my favorite books of the year here, Hook Points from Brendan Kane. Yeah. And when it comes to hook points and and specifically taglines or headlines or you know the initial words to grab attention. What are some best practices that you found effective? We try to go for a very specific pain point and so for instance, let's say you have you're trying to target CEOs for some like a, a financial product. It'd be pretty easy to say here's what our product is, here's what it does. But so much more impactful would be to start out like, were you in a meeting last week and your CFO couldn't tell you this figure? 
and and you were embarrassed, our product fixes that pain point. Like you, you pull them in with an experience or a specific time where they didn't feel on top of their game and you show them how you'll you'll aspirationally make them succeed. And that's a great way to grab attention in just, you know, just your first sentence, push on a pain point. Why do you think it's not our first instinct to sell the way that we buy? Oh man, I have no idea. It, it blows me away because I, I feel the same way. Like the first time, you know, in a college class, it was a sales class that the teacher was like, okay, sell me. And of course I proceeded to do what I hate in sales. Like I was acting like a used car dealer, <laughs> sell me this pen. You know, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think all of us need to exercise some introspection here. You know, my, my guess, and I'd be interested in what you think. My guess is when we're selling something, we're in that like logic lawyer part of our brain, right? And, and we spent a ton of time on the logic of why and how and the better. And, and when we're in a buying phase, it's like, I mean, the science shows that it's our emotions about logic. It's like the logic lawyer in our brain argues both sides, both sides. And then finally, the emotional judge, the limbic system says, hey, neocortex, here's how I, here's how I feel about that logic. I feel like we're going to go this way. Right. And I mean, I think about this a week ago, I was, I was pitching our investment fund to uh, this accredited investor buddy and, and he didn't come from a strong real estate background. Um, He's a tech sector guy. And I was, you know, I was kind of bragging about the like, Hey, you know, look at what we've been able to do applying like the Warren Buffett principles and, and going after, going after unpopular assets that nobody else wants. And, and as a result, we're like finding these diamonds in the rough that other people haven't even thought to look at in the first place, whatever. And what he heard was unpopular assets no one will look at. Maybe that's for a reason. Like why, <laughs> what's going, you know, what's going, right? And because he didn't come from the context of like, hey, an efficient market, you're unlikely to get a deal. If everybody's got similar type of information, what makes you think you're so smart, right? Yes. And so, you know, without this context of where we're coming from of like, Hey, you know, buying, buying the popular stuff, everybody will say great job, but you're not going to make a lot. You're not going to make a high margin. Everybody's trying to buy a industrial building that has Amazon as a tenant. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) Like everybody wants a triple net lease for, from, from Walgreens. That's going to pay forever. Right. Oh yeah. You know, they, they pay no matter what COVID does to them, right? This kind of stuff. Well, without all that context and all these like logical reasons on, you know, I had not only had I not gone over the background, I hadn't tied it to the angle he's looking for, which is like, a high, you know, my assumption was a higher rate of return that you can actually rely on. You know, yeah. I was going to tell him about, hey, look at these buildings that other people would assume must be terrible. But if you actually look at them, like they've got 98% rent collection and you know, people keep watching the news in Manhattan and this is not Manhattan right here. Look at what's happening there. Right. And I took so much for granted. I was, I was geeking out on the technicality of why we're able to get, you know, why we're able to get these deals that appear to have a much stronger return. Right. And he wants to hear, like, I didn't even bring the part up about the return. I was just, I was just bringing up the strategy because I'm geeking out on the strategy so hard because I'm such a Warren Buffett nerd. <laughs> well, he's not a Warren Buffett nerd. He's not a real estate nerd. He doesn't really care. He wants to know like the implication that by finding stuff like that, it can pay a higher rate of return. And B, he's probably much more interested in why I actually think it is a good deal when everybody else doesn't, right? Yeah. But, and and <laughs> go, go on. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I, I, just, I have some years from my, reminded me of. Well, what's funny is he's a good friend. And so he, he basically told me that, right? And so I was asking for some advice. Well, how do I improve this? 
and we started talk about, talking about different things. And I ended up bringing up like, well, I mean, the reason that I am approaching it this way, I've got so many like wealthy CEO friends or former clients or people who they make a bunch of money at their regular business, but they have like the slight anxiety. Like what if this all blows away with the wind one day? <laughs> they, they would like, they would like another form of passive income that they actually can feel like they can rely on. And, and they'd like to get off the hamster wheel of death that their business feels like, yes. but they'd like to have a little security other than like, I hope my team can take over and that there's no blips and you know, right. And he's like, no, I get that. And he was like, he is so invested in this, like, can I get off, you know, I'm rich, but I'm still on the hamster wheel. You know, this could be my route for off the hamster. He could care less what we're buying at first. What yeah. he really cares about, like, this is a legitimate path to get off the hamster wheel now that now that I've I've made some money, right? Yeah. And again, it just I'm not taking I wasn't taking it from the customer perspective. I wasn't I wasn't well I hadn't done enough work on recognizing what his context was and stuff. That's what I think I did wrong in that scenario. What what kind of comments do you have? Well, that brings up a really really good thought for me is like when I'm trying to sell something, my objective is not the same thing as when I'm buying. And I, I think we probably tend to approach a situation in the frame of our own objective. So if you can do what you've done with your friend is think through and, and strategize, okay, here's what they want. This is what's important to them. So I'm going to reframe my idea and, and give it to them in a way that they want. And I think that's the reason that we, we oftentimes fail at sales. You know, I... I'm glad you highlighted that because as soon as you said that, I thought about like, I used to be a client of this group called the Arbinger's, Arbinger Institute. They're amazing. Got great books like Leadership and Self-Deception and Outward Mindset, Anatomy Peace, Bonds and Make Us Free, just life-changing books. Okay. Yeah. I had a chance to, to actually go work for them for a bit and it was kind of like a dream job, right? And I, I was able to make some large sales. You know, like one of them was, was an, an army client that, you know, they were talking about buying about $60,000 worth of training and I worked with him over 90 days. They came back with a $2.8 million order, right? <laughs> nice. And so I was like, hey, this is a good upsell. It's great upsell. And so I think back to what happened there. And it was like, I just constantly told them stories about what was working for other people. Hey, I don't know if you've got this problem, but some of my other clients have said that some of their individual contributors, they they promoted because they were so good at their job, but now they realize they didn't have as, mit, as many people skills or they didn't have built-in leadership skills. They had get the job done skills. And now there's some friction. And I'm just like reading a page out of their diary, right? Out of their journal. And they're like, oh, hold on. I, I have that one. What did, what did your people buy? Right? Well, why don't I do that on LinkedIn? You know, like we're doing a 506C, you know, a regulation D 506C raise, which means I'm allowed to advertise it to anybody and I'm allowed to accept money from accredited investors. You know, there's a lot of those on LinkedIn. Why, why am I not sitting here? Like I have tasked zero people on my team to start working on ads of what's the narrative in our customer mind? right? How are they framing this problem? Like people don't want to know facts and figures. They want it. They want it for the reasons they want it, not for the reasons we want to sell it, right? Absolutely. Hit it out of the park. <laughs> but what would you add to that? I mean, what we try to do when we're writing ad copy, we're trying to put ourselves in the mind of of our of our ideal prospect and try to predict what it is that's going to motivate them. Some people are motivated by fear and by telling them, hey, if you don't do this, you're going to be behind or you'll look bad or you'll get fired. Uh, maybe that's motivating to them. Sometimes people are motivated by the aspirational, like, hey, we'll make you look good. You'll look like the hero. You'll, you know, you'll, you'll take your company to the next level. And you know, sometimes people are motivated. A lot of times people are motivated by just following the crowd. Like, did you know that all of your competitors are doing this? You ought to be too. So it, it's understand like who they are and what it is that they're going after. And then we'll run a whole bunch of different tests to, to test which motivation is most powerful. 
So let, let's do some examples. Obviously, I'm in, you know, we got two companies. We got the media company, we got the finance business, right? So in our investment fund business, we're, we're trying to appeal to folks who've actually got some money to invest with, and it's about a financial decision. But this is not unique to us. You know, like I was looking at, you know, I was listening to my own show, Richard Koch, the guy that wrote the 80-20 principles, like one of my heroes. So I keep re-listening to my own interview with him to like really make sure I'm getting all the principles out of it. And so I'm listening to my own show and I hear an ad for Goldman Sachs on my show the other day, right? And there's, they've been putting a number of like financial buyers and, you know, financial related advertisers on our show, the advertised guests. So, you know, whether it's us, whether it's Goldman, whether it's somebody else, when it comes to appealing to that finance world, you know, you can't always go for the throat, right? Like, sure, sometimes they might just buy, I remember your story about the helicopter rides from LA to Orange County, right? But thinking about this, like highly professional, probably higher income individual, somebody's trying to appeal to them. Maybe Goldman Sachs wants them to be a private wealth client, or I want them to be an investor or somebody, you know, right? When it comes to like the kind of lead magnet or the kind of like, hey, what can we do to get their attention? And then what can we, what can we be trying to attract them to, to kind of build that trust before we ever go for a sale? What kind of best practices do you have of like the kind of lead magnets that that actually get attention on on LinkedIn and, and get people putting in email addresses and stuff like that? Yeah, Jess, underscoring the the concept here that these people are getting pitched all the time. When you're a registered accredited investor, like everyone wants a piece of you. And so any pitch that you're going to go for the throat with them, they've heard it a hundred times and you don't look anything different. So the approach where you're going to give them some kind of lead magnet is, is all about either providing a providing education that they couldn't get anywhere else. So that's why reports and statistics work really well. When you have access to, to data or information that they've never heard before, then it puts you in a great place. They need to get it from you. Something that solves a major pain point, like I don't know what a, what someone wealthy would need right now, but let's say there's a new financial instrument out there that is you know becoming really popular, and you've got some kind of asset that explains it to them and and you know when and how and what all the complexities are. That's interesting. And another one could be that it, it satisfies a curiosity that they have. So you you discuss or or cover in detail something that they want to know about, something that's newsworthy, something that they care about. Well, I mean, as you say that, I'm thinking like for the stats and reports, right? There's a lot of time where whether you are working together with a business media firm or whether it's just your own clients, especially those big guys will very easily have stats that are not generally available, right? Yeah. It's, it's their own client bases by definition, not public information. You know, like if they came out with a report of like, you know, what, what percentage of Goldman Sachs's largest private wealth management clients are invested in Bitcoin versus real estate. Like that's, it's, it's got a curiosity factor. It's a stat that you don't know the the inherently you haven't heard anywhere else, right? You know, on the pain point one, I mean, I know this is like so straightforward and I know it, but for some reason, when you're saying it, it's making me think about it different. And I'm thinking like, you know, if they offered the like, how to know if your wealth management firm is is actually high performance or not, right? Yeah. What what questions to ask your estate lawyer to know if they are up on the 2021 tax code? What, yes. you know, like, like, like some tool of like, I don't know, like the, the guy's like 850 bucks an hour, my international tax lawyer. How do I know if he's, I don't know if he really knows the stuff because for 850 bucks an hour, I can probably swap to a different one, right? Yeah. Yeah. And when you're casting fear and uncertainty and doubt on who they're already with, then it puts them into a, a stage of like, oh, well, you're the sage. I'm going to use you as a resource. 
and then you're automatically the second one in line if they lose trust and credibility so, in their own person. Yeah, so there's for sure for sure that, but I'm also thinking like just what are other issues? You know, I had a guy on the show yesterday who lends people money against their artwork. So if you've got a million dollar painting and you don't want to sell the painting, but you do want to put a half million dollars down on some other building, he'll lend you the half million bucks. You know, you 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 send the art to his storage facility, he gives you the half million bucks. And what people do is they use it for like bridge lending. They're like, hey, I'm just going to put 500 grand down right now until, and then I'll back that out with a loan and get my, put my painting back in my living room, right? Kind of a thing. It's just yeah. like quick, quick access because it's completely collateral based. They don't, they're not going to go through your income. They're not going to, they don't care about your net worth. They care like, is that painting worth, is that painting worth a million bucks? Could we liquidate it quickly for a million bucks? Okay. Yeah. We'll lend you 500 grand because if we get stuck with the painting, we're going to get our money back. Totally. Well, I, you know, I had somebody on the show this last month, we're taught, you know, very wealthy individual afterwards, we're talking about their, you know, their $600,000 painting they bought this month. And the context was don't spoil your kids. You don't need to buy everything name brand. This is, you know, prepare your kids to have to be happy, even if they don't end up rich, like you did. And, and they they said like, it's not like you can't have anything nice. You know, there was this painting that I really loved and I bought it. It was 600 grand, right? Well, my, my point is like on your pain point thing of like, there's a lot of people with art who don't know all the possibilities, but they don't know, they don't know what the new insurance or tax rules have changed that could be beneficial to them. And like having a pain point, having a pain point uh, solution of how to know if your art, you know, how to know something about your art, right? Like it doesn't even have to be my expertise. I can call that guy back and go like, Hey, you want to do an ebook together? And it'll be about yeah. finance and art and investing. And you can add the stuff. You can add the cool stuff about Rembrandt paintings and Andy Warhol and I'll add the like boring, reliable stuff about owning buildings, you know, right? But if it was, anyways, I know I'm like making this all up on the spot, but as you're saying that I'm, I know this point, but as you said, it, it just makes me think about it differently. Oh yeah. I love that concept of partnering with someone who like, let, let's say you don't have data, but you know, someone who does co-writing a piece together and then being able to co-market it. There's, that's, there's a lot of power there. You know, I was thinking back on the reports one and, and I, it kind of ties into to curiosity for me as well your third point here is even if you're a small firm, I'm not Goldman Sachs, right? I'm not even a rounding error on a single Goldman Sachs office. Do you know what I mean? Right. But, but there's no reason that I can't do a survey of, you know, millionaire entrepreneurs. Right. And I can, and I can like, I could come out with original research, not too difficult that says, Hey, what are millionaire entrepreneurs buying in April of 2021? And by definition, that will likely be unique. You know, like, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's thought that up, but I'm on LinkedIn all the time. I have not, nobody's been advertising that report to me. Right. And like, you know, information that other people don't know, plus the curiosity of everybody wants to know what their peers are doing, or especially those people like one level above, you know, it's like, Hey, here's the report of people with net worth one to 10 million. Here's surveyors 10 million and up or something, yeah. you know, right. And like con contrasting them. Hey, what are people, what are millionaires worth less than 10 million buying compared to people who are worth more than 10 million buying in April, 2021, you got that time relevancy thing, right? Oh, yeah. How, so if that's my idea, how would you make it better? I'm your client. I'm saying, Hey, AG, I think I've got like an intrigue, a curiosity piece with a little bit of education or, you know, at least some statistics. How do I make this better? How do I, how would you improve that concept? Well, you determine what kind of format it's going to take. So is it like a one page cheat sheet or is there enough for like a four page guide or is this a 30 page report or ebook? You decide what format it, it takes best. And, you know, spoiler alert, like the format that it takes doesn't really change anything. It's just like when you promise someone something, you've got to deliver. 
But on the advertising side, then we're going to test different motivations against your target audience and just see like, what does it take to, you know, does it take getting 20 people to look at this page before someone downloads it? Or is every, every fourth person downloading it or every two people downloading it? And then you let the data tell you how interesting this is this report. I think all of us like to think if we, if we spent a week working on a really good report, that it's going to be amazing, but you know, the market is going to tell us that and we have to listen. Yeah. When it comes to something like, so you've got some information that, that you feel reasonably confident, it ha, you know, has little teeth to it. When it comes to testing the, the title and the cover design for an ebook like that, what are your recommendations for A-B testing or, or different types of testing? Yeah, good question. What you just mentioned is really, really important and not very many people think about this is the, the name of the piece of content, the title of the PDF means the world. And what we found is sometimes we'll have an asset that's really meaty. It's a a big report with a lot of stats. And if we just say like the comprehensive report for for, Q1 of 2021, then people go, oh, that's interesting. Like, and, and it has an okay conversion rate. But when we take some individual stat out, we point out a specific pain point in the report and we say, find this out and more. And, and we've got the ability, you know, if we test those two things and we find out specific is more interesting and converts better, at that point, we can say, ah, let's change the name of the piece of content. We used to call it the comprehensive report. Now we're going to call it, you know, why 67% of CEOs fail to this or, you know, whatever that means. What are your, I know we've talked a little bit about this on, on, in the series beforehand, but what are some of your tools of choice when it comes to testing both the design and the headlines? So there's three pieces that you are really visible on an, uh, a LinkedIn ad, a traditional one. There's the text at the top that we call the intro. There's the image itself or video if you're using video. And then there's the headline down below. And we've found that the most important thing is the text that you have above the image that catches their pain point. It gives them a call to action. And so if I have, you know, just a limited amount of time to create a couple of ads, I'm going to A-B test a different motivation probably in that intro copy. And headlines sometimes will will test, but usually we don't get a chance because when an ad starts to saturate, meaning that you know the same people have seen it repeatedly, and so your performance starts to drop, you can bring performance back by just changing the image. You can have the same exact ad copy, but now the image is different. So when someone's scrolling, their mind doesn't tell them, "Oh, you've seen this before." It goes, "Oh, what's this?" And so we find ourselves doing a lot of intro tests on you know someone's motivation try to determine what their, what their need is and, and then testing imagery just to keep things fresh. Okay. So for people who are intimidated by this or have just never done it before, where do I even click on my LinkedIn account to, to start testing stuff like this? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So if it's in ads and, and testing in ads is, is a beautiful thing and it's super straightforward, you can go to linkedin.com slash ads and you'll click on the button that says create ad and it'll have you create an account. So when you're in there, you're going to create a campaign, which represents who the audience is. That's your targeting. And then underneath the campaign, you get to create some ad variations that are going to target, that are going to be shown to your target audience. And so what we would do is just very simply create two different versions of the ad, launch them into the same campaign and just see which one wins. Over time, we'll see, you know, maybe one of them gets clicked on at a higher rate, but maybe the other one gets conversions at a higher rate. And we obviously care about the metrics that are closer to the money. That's great. You know, I just had a thought of like, you know, when you're talking about form factor and 
I, I have a real bias for video. I think that it has the highest probability of creating an emotional response, which is what's required in a decision to get made, right? But, you know, we're used to getting so much information for free these days or in, used to getting it instantly. I'm interested in any strategies you've seen of people with protected video. Like, could you do a video that like, a video that teases what's in the report, click here to get the private video and they, they have to give their email address to see the full video or have you seen people do something like that? Or do you have advice about something like that? Yeah, lots of times there'll be like a like a masterclass style webinar and they'll tease it with, here's here's two minutes of the content where you, you learn one of the, the coolest principles and you get to the end of the video and it's like, you wanna see more, watch the whole masterclass, you know, give us your email address. So that's really popular. I mean, even using a video to promote a content piece, like you said, it makes a stronger emotional connection. And the one downside on LinkedIn is that people are are not there to be entertained. So when they see video ads, they're like, unless there's a lot of motion and it looks really interesting, they're probably not gonna to pay too much attention to it. But if you can get them on like, hey, this is me telling you why down Downloading this report is super valuable. This is what you're going to get out of it. That could work extremely well. Well, it makes me think back to Brendan Koenigan and Hookpoint. And like, you got three seconds, you got three seconds to grab them by the throat and keep them from scrolling, right? Totally. So, I mean, you look at how few people who create corporate video must believe that by the kind of long introduction. I mean, you know, a large percentage of people listening to this, if they haven't listened to Joe Rogan, they at least know who he is. Okay. Well, you go on JRE Clips YouTube channel, Joe Rogan Experience Clips YouTube channel. The guy's intro, I think, is less than a second. Yeah. And then he's he's right into the juicy part of a question, right? Yeah. And, and like, he gets right to it, you know? And, you know, arguably top podcaster in the world these days, sells his company to Spotify for a hundred million bucks. Maybe there's some lessons for us, right? Totally. Think about if we were adopting more of that in corporate video. Like if I'm scrolling through my LinkedIn feed and like, no kidding. Like in that first three seconds, they have, they've nailed me with the punchline or they, they've just set such a big intrigue point. Right. And that that's, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I don't think that's LinkedIn alone. I think that was, is helpful on Facebook and anywhere else, but especially in this place where I'm not, this is not Vimeo. This is not YouTube. I didn't, I didn't come here for videos, right. Didn't come here looking to, to watch videos. So you probably even have that additional pressure of you better sink that hook quick. Absolutely. And I can't tell you how many clients have given us like, oh, here's our, our brand video. And it's like four seconds of fading from black into their logo. And it's like, you just, you just lost a hundred percent of the, the viewers. You, you've got to start with motion, with action, with something that, that they think is visually interesting. Otherwise you've lost them. Well, look, look, how many movie trailers have the mini trailer before the trailer? These yeah. days, right. How many like you know, I look at the kind of YouTube channels that my teenagers watch, right? And like, as soon as you click on it, it's like showing you like the climax points when the whole, the giant marshmallow stuff explodes the size <laughs> of a house in purple and green, right? And then it cuts to the intro of the video. And it's like, it's already, it's already got its teeth into me, right? Yes. Yeah. And you know, if, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, oh no, you're, you're giving away the you're giving away the plot. You're giving away the ending. You, you can't do that in storytelling. But boy, I I find myself like really giving into that. Movie trailers and uh, even some TV shows will show you the end, and the, the character goes, "Stop. Okay, let me let me show you how I got here. You know, I'm I'm about to die. How did I get here?" And Which goes back to curiosity, right? Yes. You know, if you had a like, I'm just thinking about this. Like, you have a report that's got something juicy in it about your ideal prospects, you know, peers or competitors, right? 
and you spill the beans right up front and then you say, but let me tell you how it got this way. Do you know you set that intrigue and then you could take them on a story and then, you know, click here, you know, we, we, you know, we've got a private video. We've got a private video to show you why this has happened. Click, you know, click here to get it. That'd be um, really cool. So I know that organic, you know, doing something organic, the, the algorithm is not going to reward sending people away from the platform, but with, with paid, it probably doesn't matter. Does it? Nope. Doesn't matter at all. If you're paying LinkedIn eight to $12 a click, they'll, let, they'll happily let you take their traffic wherever you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you think about the math of like, that's $8 a click. That's not $8 a conversion. That's Correct. right. $12 a click, not $12 a conversion. When you're helping clients think through the math of like, man, we've got to do this in a way, like you got to figure out what the value of this customer is to you. You got to figure out how many clicks we're going to have to get to get a conversion, how many conversions we're going to have to get to get a client. Can you help me think through that maybe a little deeper? Yeah. And usually when a client comes to us, they'll have some analysis on their sales cycle and, and their, their sales funnel so that we can look at it and say, okay, LinkedIn leads generally perform better than about every other lead source. So if uh, half of your, your leads graduate to a marketing qualified lead, we can assume that probably 70% or higher of LinkedIn leads will do that. And then if uh, let's say one in four leads turns from a marketing qualified lead to a sales qualified lead, then maybe LinkedIn will be more like a third. And so we can kind of back into it and say, all right, if your lifetime value when you close a customer is you know $15,000, let's do the math here. It looks like we're probably going to pay one to $4,000 in ad spend to close that deal that's worth 15 to us. And that's how we can help them at least project what, what's likely. Yeah. You know, people define things differently. In your mind, what's the definition of a market qualified lead versus a sale qual sales qualified lead? Yeah, this is super different for, for like you said, uh, every company, they have their own definition. Uh, for me, a marketing qualified lead would be uh, someone where I have, I have their contact info and they are, I don't, I didn't already have them in my database. They're net new and, and they are like in my target audience. So I have very, very loose filters around them. something like a sales qualified lead would be, we've talked to them and they've expressed interest. Like it sounds like there's an opportunity that's going to move forward here, but we've worked with all kinds of different B2B companies who have very specific criteria. Like, no, they don't, they don't become a marketing qualified lead until they've spent, you know, a cumulative 25 minutes on the website and or downloaded three different assets, you know. Lead scoring wise. Yeah, exactly. And then sales qualified lead. Yeah, sales qualified is usually, sometimes there's a sales accepted lead, which is like the sales team saying, yes, marketing, the lead that you send over to us, we do like it. We think it's worth following up on. And then you'll have a sales qualified, which is like, they've talked to the, the person, they're amenable to, you know, maybe at this point they've had a demo. And so that means that they're, they're sales qualified, but something along that line. Yeah. You know, I imagine you handle some accounts for more entrepreneurial firms, as well as some, some very large bureaucratic organizations. Yeah. yeah. So thinking about maybe some corporate innovator who's listening to the show today, they're at, they're at like a big fancy firm that's got a really cool logo, but that also means like doing new stuff takes a lot of approvals. Yes. When it comes to lead scoring, when it comes to them wanting to do something like that so that the sales team can raise their hand and say, yeah, they've met enough. They've met enough of our needs. You know, they, they read the ebook, they did this, they took the first call from you. Yeah. Yeah. I want them. Do you have any thoughts on kind of skirting the system on like, what can people do to, to create their own lead scoring system without having to get corporate in New York to sign off that we're using a new program on our corporate website? Yeah. One thing you can do is just 
like when you design your landing pages for your LinkedIn ads campaigns, you can talk to your, your CRM admin, if it's like a Salesforce admin, and you can, you can tell them, Hey, when leads come from this source, you know, mark them above the threshold. So they actually get attention. And so you, you can sometimes short circuit it like that. Sometimes you can keep it all within LinkedIn. So you get to like, you get to control that. And then what you can start doing is sending, uh, and what I mean by that is LinkedIn has this ad uh, format where when someone clicks on the ad, uh, a little drawer slides down and there's form fields right within the ad. So they don't even have, they don't even have to leave the LinkedIn experience. What's um, that called? They call it lead gen format. Okay. And, and that can be really valuable. So you, as the marketer, you have, you own this data, you see the conversions coming in and you kind of get to do with it what you will. So you could have a, a contact in sales where you, that you trust and you can say, Hey, I'm going to forward you these deals as they come in. You know, can you work them and treat them this way? Yeah. Anything else you'd add to that subject? thought I had something, but I lost it. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring it back up if it pops back up. Yeah. Well, sticking on kind of the theme for today's episode, what else would you have to say about not being boring, not being blending, not blending in, like what's actually going to get attention on LinkedIn. Well, when you look at all the other posts and this is whether it's, whether it's an ad or whether it's an organic post, when you look at everything, there's not very much that's actually worth interacting with for the most part. It's like some company will be announcing a product or something. And you know, if you were to like or comment on that post, no one would see or care. Like the company's not going to reply back to you. LinkedIn hasn't made that easy for companies to like actually reply. And so I think people on LinkedIn are just used to like, oh, ignore it. But when your post makes a personal connection, when they feel compelled to, oh, I have to share my opinion here. I have to jump in and, and respond. That is, it's incredibly powerful. You cut right through all of the fluff that you know is on the network. And what's more is anytime that someone is commenting actively on a post, LinkedIn looks at that and goes, ooh, there's real conversation going on here. We like that. Let's let's make this post go viral. Let's show it to a whole lot of this person's, you know, first degree network and then second degree network and, and even third degree. And so if you can just like every post I put together, my goal in writing is, okay, what am I going to put here that makes people want to comment? Mm -hmm. And if you create content like that as ads, it's a little bit harder, but if you create organic content, you will have no shortage of, of people seeing your stuff. You know, it makes me think we did a mini series last year, a couple of them with Shane Snow, who wrote Smart Cuts and started Contently, a big hundred million dollar tech brand in New York. And he's got like 450,000 followers on LinkedIn. And he, he pays attention to like, oh, videos are what's working. And then, oh, no, you know, newsletters are what LinkedIn's trying to promote. So he he says like, and now this is much, much more organic, but he says like, do yourself a favor and look at what the platform is trying to promote and do them a favor. Like they're trying to get people to care about newsletters, start caring about newsletters, right? Absolutely. And he like has a list of friends that, that he knows are going to comment on certain stuff that he does. And he says that like, he's intentionally writing everything as the opening of a conversation. Yeah. And, it, and that has created a ton of, you know, a, a ton of engagement. And if you look at his posts, like, I, I can see a strategy all the time. Like he, he genuinely, like the sincerity of his questions come through. Like he actually wants to know what you think. 
And then yeah. he's responding in those and, and it, it does feel much more interactive than, you know, I've got friends who just like, they just repost some news headline. Like, well, we, we could have got to, you know, we could have gone to Bloomberg and read that ourselves. Like we could have yeah. gone to Wall Street and Journal and read that ourselves. I didn't need that in the post. There's no context to them personally. Anyway. Yeah. And that's one of those really interesting elements of LinkedIn's algorithm, their sharing algorithm, is that when, when you go and reshare a post, like, oh, so-and-so did a post that I really like, or Bloomberg did a post I really like, I want to reshare it. LinkedIn looks at that like, eh, that's not that big of a signal of quality, someone sharing something, but they love comments. <laughs> and it just, whenever I share something, what I try to do is, is in that intro text that you get, explain why I like this article and why it's valuable to me or my industry and just, and personalize it. And those at least can get some good interaction. So can we talk about the for and against of having a lot of LinkedIn connections? Ooh, sure. So I, I know, at least I know the position you used to have. So why don't you describe that? And then let's talk about the other direction. Yeah, sure. So right when LinkedIn came out, they were recommending, hey, only connect to people that you know. And, and I, I followed them on that advice, especially early on, people would say, Ooh, you're connected to so-and-so they're applying for a job. Can you tell me about a bit about them? And a couple times I kind of got caught unawares where someone asked and I was like, Ooh, I know I'm connected to him, but I, I don't, I don't rem remember that person. And it kind of made me more staunch in my ideas. That's like, okay, if I'm really careful about who I connect to, I build a really strong network, then, then it'll be relevant to me and it'll be tight. So th that was my initial approach. And I'm, I'm still, still pretty close there, although I've loosened up a little bit. My other guess there is when you're posting stuff, if, if these are people who are, you're actually tight with, they're far more likely to react to it and you, you can possibly catch that algorithm, right? Yes. Yeah. Your friend with 450,000 followers on LinkedIn, probably so many people are following him just because he's popular and they want to, they want to know what the popular people are saying, but they don't feel endeared to him. And when he puts out an announcement, they're not going to be commenting and you know slapping him on the back. Good job, man. So it's so much easier with my, I don't know, like 16,000 followers for me to go viral than it is for him because he's got to get, you know, over 450,000 people to see something. And I only need, you know, 16,001 <laughs> to see mine. Can, can you explain that for, for people who don't understand why? Yes. So the way that it works is when you have a post that goes out on LinkedIn, it's going to go to a, some portion of your followers. And it's this testing time that, and your followers and your connections are, are you know, pretty similar in this regard. LinkedIn looks at it during this testing period to decide, ooh, how good is this? Like, did two or three people like in the first few minutes? And did someone comment in the first 10 minutes? You know, whatever they're looking for, for a judge of quality, then they decide how many of your connections or followers to show the content to. So let's say you have a post that does really well. So LinkedIn says, ah, we're going to show this to 100% of Jess's connections and followers. And then what happens is your followers, some of them hit like, several of them comment. And now LinkedIn looks at it and goes, ooh, this is really good. Let's, let's push this article or this post also to the networks of the people who liked and commented. And so now, you know, let's, let's say you've got 20,000 connections on LinkedIn. If you have a post that gets 25,000 views, what that means is, you know, you really did go viral. You reached 5,000 people who you weren't supposed to reach. Like you're not connected to them. So you shouldn't have been able to, but the algorithm helped you out. Yeah. So can I tell you a different strategy and get your feedback on it? Absolutely. So uh, another strategy too is like, 
for people who are maybe using the tool differently, there can be this idea of like, yeah, I would like to max out having 30,000 connections, not even for what I'm even going to do with them on LinkedIn per se, but just so that I can have their personal contact info and my internal team can put them in the CRM. You know, maybe we look them up on Rocket Reach or something, right? Yep. Put them in the CRM and say, hey, I know we don't know each other that well on LinkedIn. I'd love to learn more. You like just from a nur- like just from a nurturing and expanding standpoint. Any thoughts on a strategy like that? Yeah, there's a there's a big problem with spam on LinkedIn. At least I consider it a big problem where people will, you know, send you a connection request and the second you accept, they pepper you with a, a sales pitch. We've talked about this before. And what's so interesting is because I, I so closely curate my network, I don't see the spam. I see a whole bunch of connection requests that I ignore because I can tell they're, they were written by a robot, but I'm not getting constantly hounded. Uh, I, and it's because I'm connecting to the people who are like, they really want to be connected to me. I'm not just a number to them. So it means for me, less spam. And it means I have a tighter, you can almost call it a fan base. These are people who care when I post stuff. So they're much more likely to like and comment. And so it's more of my posts get seen by more people because of that. When you open it up and say, okay, 30,000 people, you're you're going to have a tough time with all of the spam. I mean, it's going to be a full-time job of just like managing the messaging box in there. And then of course, trying to make sure you don't like damage your reputation by like the way that you're dealing with people. Yeah. Can I just say my life got so good this week because I got a second executive assistant. Woo! Right? <laughs> like the things like that. Like, for instance, in that case, I, like I literally said, hey, can you just read my LinkedIn inbox and see if there's anything I need to know about? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it. You just got to pick the right strategy for what you're trying to do. Right. Totally. Yeah. And if you want like uh, if you want exposure to as many people as possible, I get it. Like you may want to accept connection, connection requests from everyone. So you just kind of most likely people are going to fall somewhere on the spectrum between like, I'll accept anyone. And, you know, I only accept you if I, if I know you, but you pick where you are most comfortable and then like just serve that niche. Yeah. Love it. Well, listen, besides people going to check out B2 linked and, and, uh, or connecting with you on following you and your, your wisdom and your keynote speeches and the stuff you're doing, Anything else you want to leave with today? Oh, no, just don't don't underestimate LinkedIn, both from an ads perspective and an organic perspective. It is a network that, especially if you're dealing with, you know, big, big deal sizes and large lifetime values, that's really the only network you need to spend time on. That's where the influential people are there and reachable and you know, don't count it out. Love it. Okay, let's do this again. Awesome. Have me back anytime. Okay, bye everyone.